We've had phenomenal responses to the ex-police that we've had on the podcast. The John Wedger interview's got hundreds of thousands of views. Neil Wood's just gone up, already getting a great response. And I've got here today Maggie Oliver, who I saw in the news headlines. John Wedger recommended her. I read Maggie's book over the summer. Maggie Oliver, Fighting for Justice, Survivors. And it just brought tears to my eyes, not only because of her career journey where she was trying to do the right thing and just got pummeled by the bureaucracy, but also her personal story in it, what happens with her family and her husband. I'm not going to spoil the plot, but absolutely heartbreaking. And I'm just, you know, I feel the emotion now building up from reading, reading about you just, and, and, you, and you're just, you're just here with us today. I'd also like to say that this book, Survivors, is available worldwide on Amazon. The link is in the description box below this video, as is a link to the foundation that Maggie is running. Very important work. We're going to get into that in the interview. And if you are looking for a public speaker, Maggie is available. If you go to her website, there is a contact page there, and that is how you can get a hold of her. So... A paid public speaker, by the way. <laughs> Everything I do is free. <laughs> Good grief. So you made news headlines because you blew the whistle on the Rochdale grooming gang. Now, most of my viewers are in America, so they oh, wow. probably don't even know what that means. Right. Could you just explain what that even means? Who were the Rochdale grooming gang? Oof. Where do I start? Probably read my book first (laughs) and then listen afterwards. But obviously, um, grooming is a word that has become fashionable in a way. But really what it is, is gangs of men who rape children and very young children. The youngest I've dealt with personally was aged 11. But 11 to 14, 15 is is the, the normal pattern. And gangs is quite right, it suggests, Uh, very sophisticated networks of men, uh, paedophiles, who link up, come together, work together in order to sexually abuse and exploit children. Um, And until, actually, I I joined the police in 1997, um, and until 2004 and 5, I didn't even know that these grooming gangs existed. It, It just wasn't spoken about. It wasn't in the press. Um, we didn't, I, as a police officer, you know, I'd been in the police nearly 10 years when I was first asked to join a job which, Operation Augusta, and it was like a, a bomb going off in my head um, because I became very quickly aware that this had been known by the authorities for probably 10 years when I found out about it, but they kept the lid on it. Okay, before we get to that then, because we're going to do your life story chronologically... Yeah. What was your background and why did you choose to become, to join the police? Now that's the question. Because um, I'm just an, an ordinary woman. Um, I, got, I met my husband when I was 20. I had four children. Loved being a mum and I was a, a stay-at-home mum for many years, doing, you know, bits of part-time work, worked in a, um, a, a home for severely handicapped kids, part-time, and became chair of governors and... You know, my life revolved around my family. Um, 
I really loved my husband. We had a really great marriage. Yeah, obviously we had ups and downs, but um, I'm the kind of person that I'm, I'm always busy, you know. That's why I had four kids, I guess. <laughs> they kept me busy. <laughs> but, you know, I've kind of had lots of different chapters in my life and being at home with the kids was one. But it got to the point where my, my youngest, Matt, um, he was going to be going to nursery. So I went back and did a full-time degree at, um, at university because I was going to teach. And then in my final year, um, I thought, Sean, you know what, I've had, if I don't get in is one thing, what am I going to do? But also I've had a lifetime, really 15 years of being with kids. Do I really want to spend the rest of my life just with other people's kids? And so I applied to the police. But <coughs> nobody would have ever thought of me as a police officer, more of a social worker. But I wanted to go into child protection. Um, and it was a challenge. And I applied. And to my shock, I got in. Um, and even more shocked when I was posted to my side. So before we get to there, then, <laughs> did they just like say, "All right, you're in," no. or did you have to do some training oh and go for God. all kinds of things? It, it was a bloody mission. <laughs> 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 Let me tell you, I got through easily. The, um, the you know, you like kind of do psychometric tests and observation and like English and and all that, and then you have a physical. Um, you, have, you have a medical and you have an interview but you have a physical and I was 41 years old and I was expected to do as as every other mature entrant exactly what a 20 year old would do and um, I can't run I could never run <laughs> and it became like a family mission to get me to run this bloody bleep test you know <laughs> up and down and in fact no, my husband was called Norman No, I said I can't do this I'll never do it Right, got the and it's in my book, isn't it? <laughs> got the kids' little um, tape recorder out. I got a tape of the bleep test, and we're over on the field every night, like running between these two t-shirts. And the kids are saying, "Go on, mom, go on, mom." <laughs> uh, but you know what? I did it. I got to level seven, and I nearly died when I, you know, couldn't breathe. But then I could score the points to pass the physical, um, and I got in. And, um, so all the other cadets are young people. Mostly, you, yeah. You get you get quite a few of older guys who have been um, in the services, you know, ex ex forces, and they come out at like thirty eight, and they think right, uniform service that you know they're physically fit, they're disciplined, and they quite often join the police. But you don't get many women like me. Yeah, that's different to a bit of a mother who's just had four, who's had four kids and yeah, it's like you know having some physical exercise like that. You know, you used to I, no. you run after the kids, yeah, but that's about it, isn't it? <laughs> I kind of was like a fish out of water, if yeah. I'm honest. And when I joined, um, within with within a, a, I think the first day actually, you go to Sedgley Park in Manchester and you all sit round in a little group and there's your class. And they go through the class and say, right, you're going here, you're going here, you're going here. Maggie, you're going to Moss Side. And I thought, no, you've got, you've got the wrong person here. That's this guy next to me. <laughs> <laughs> because anybody who doesn't know in those days, in the 90s, Moss Side was just known for gangs. It was called Gunchester and gangs and drugs and um, murders. And I thought, I've never, you know, I, to be honest, when I drove through Moss Side, I would fasten my windows up and lock my doors and think, bloody hell. And, and they're putting me there. in uni You've got to do two years in uniform. 
So it was a shock. But you know what? It was actually an inspired um, uh, location for them to send me because I was different and I re- I loved it. You know, the families there, yeah, some of the lads got into a bit of bother. But it's very difficult in those communities to actually to keep completely out of it. Your best mate at school might be a, a member of this gang or that gang. And a lot of them would just like toy with it and sort of steer a, a line through the middle to keep safe in many respects. And um, but they, they weren't wicked. A, a lot of them were not wicked. The people at the top of those gangs are the ones that actually are smart enough to escape the police. It's the young boys at the bottom of the pile that we were dealing with and the foot soldiers yeah the foot soldiers and I I worked on you know one of the biggest eventually one of the biggest gang jobs that Manchester ever had um the you know Colin Joyce Lee Amos they went to prison for many years it was a Gooch gang um double murder and um but I became a family liaison officer so I would work very closely with the families of whoever had been killed and to be honest it was often six or one and half a dozen of the other. You know, it, yeah. it was two gangs, opposing gangs, and whoever came off worst in a shootout was, was actually potluck. But my job as a police officer was not to judge those. My job was to help gather the evidence. And and I was always very clear about that, that, you know, um doesn't matter what I think. Um, for me, the law is there to be used ethically and honestly. Um, and I think that's what people saw in me, that, you know, I was... I was. I, th- I think I'm a very fair person. Um, my job was to gather evidence. It's a, it's the job of a, of a jury and a court to decide guilt. So I didn't go in there um, on the high horse or... I would just go in there and, and speak to people. You know? the facts, basically. We had a yeah. guest on yesterday, actually, funny enough, he was from my side, Darren Laycock. Oh, God. That's a blast from the past. <laughs> you had Darren Laycock here? He was here yesterday, and he was describing oh. how it was tit for tat. And it was. Once they killed your best friend, then, you know, you were seeking blood, and it's just that lifestyle for so many years. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm a, I, I do. he won't know me, but I do remember him. That was in the early days when I was in Moss Side and we had the long sight crew and um, obviously Lee Amos and the pit, you know. Um, what's his first name? It's got, I'm really bad with names. The, the Pitbull crew and there was a long sight crew. And my first big job when I was in the police, and I wasn't even in the CID, I'd only got two years in, and I was called in and, and asked to relocate. Um, a family um, as a witness protection job. So, uh, you know, I worked on serious crime. That's yeah. what I did. And when I joined, everybody has to do two years in uniform. But I was never interested in traffic. I was never interested in, you know, a job in, in, in the book. You know, four little kids who had eaten a sausage roll around Asta. And, you know, the policy was to lock them up. You well, got through in the deep end, though, didn't you, really? Oh, 100%. <laughs> right in the thick of it. <laughs> and, and I'd go home at night, and normally, you know, here's 
me like a, you know, a mum and a housewife and a parent governor. My husband, Norman, was a joiner, and I used to be waiting for him to come in and tell me what had gone on. Yeah. He'd be sat there with all the butties <laughs> and four kids, right, what's gone on tonight? And it was, you know, it was, it was exciting, though, and... um but I never lost sight of what I promised to do. And that was to, you know, act with integrity and honesty and protect the vulnerable, uphold the law, um, you know, look after people's human rights. They're the values that I believed a police officer is duty bound to uphold. And I've never changed that. I've never, I think because I was a bit long in the tooth, I was quite set in my ways. I know what's right and what's wrong. And anybody who says they never do anything wrong is a liar. Yeah. You know, it's the degree of that wrong um, that matters. You know, most people in this country are generally law-abiding people. We police by consent. We're not a police state. I always say we're a police service. It's only very rarely you need to be a police force. Um, and that that's the way it should be for me. So... I've never lost those values and naively I believed that that's what a police officer was meant to do. Well, that's what strikes me about reading your book. You're just this genuine soul struggling against this bureaucracy. I'm just curious, going back to one of the things you said there then, you said you were working on witness protection. Yeah. So how does that work in this country? Well, the, the job I worked on was... Um, it was a lad called Paul Day, and, and, a, and he was a member of a big gang. And there'd been a kidnapping and a chase and da 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 da, da lots of things. But <coughs> one of the the absolute key witness, the eyewitness, um, was a young lad who lived in a, a big house with extended family. He was from a Pakistani background, actually. Um, and GMP have a big witness protection department, but they would only take on board the actual key witness and his, his, a couple of his relatives. But in the house where he lived was um, an extended family. So I was brought in. I'd only got two years in the job and said, look, we've got this. I knew about the job. Um, we've got this job. We have part of the family that the force are going to relocate and give new identities. And But we've got another part of the family um, and we wonder whether you could do it. This was the, the superintendent, a guy called Andy Holt, who actually I've, I've only got good things to say about. Um, and I thought, again, well, I've no tra- you know, no training. I've never, I'm still in uniform. I'm not even in CID. But the fact that he, he trusted me to do that, I said, well, you know, I've got four kids of my own. I've lived my life. I've, you know, I've been around the block a bit. Well, I'll just, yeah, I'll do it. And, and all, all I did was treat them as though they were my family, you know, find them a new home, find them a new new schools, doctors, treated them as people. And and it, it was a very successful job, and I, and I loved it. That was, my, I don't know if it was the first or the second time I'd worked on a major incident, and in, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, I had a couple of stints in child protection, um, once within my probation because I actually was going to leave the job um, for various reasons, but I just, I, I was bullied quite a lot, I felt, in, in my probation. I was seen as, by one particular supervisor or two, um, a middle-aged woman, a bit of a do-gooder, what are you doing in the job? And, and they really did their best to make me walk away. 
um, it's very hard to, to fight for yourself. What did they actually do to put that pressure on you? They just isolated me. Um, <clears throat> I, I, you know, I was treated very differently. I, for instance, I didn't... My second tutor, who's meant to guide you and mentor you, um, was a great guy, but he was ex-forces and he was proper gunko. didn't want to be saddled with a probationer. He made that absolutely clear. He wasn't even a tutor, but... Um, he was given to me, and it, it 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 made me different from other probationers. I wasn't getting the support. Um, I was being criticised rather than constructively helped. And and really, th- these two people were trying to squeeze me out of the job. And it, it came to a head when my daughter got two detached retinas and was in hospital, mm-hmm. it, it admitted as an emergency. Um, they turned up at my house, basically trying to make out that I shouldn't be off work, and I only had five days off, but that I shouldn't be off work. And mm. I went back to work, and they did a, an assessment on the day I went back, completely critical of everything. I thought that's it. I, I can't, I can't deal with this. It. I couldn't sleep, you know, and it was on my mind all the time. That's like emotional bullying, isn't it? But yeah, it, it was. It was bullying. Yeah. Um, and I'd never been bullied before um and it was making me miserable so i i understand when you were people... one of the good guys you should have i was different with though. you you know I, what i mean I, I think that many ideas in in the police are very antiquated you think there's a lot of sexism racism yes i do i think it's the old boys network very much alive and kicking and anybody who challenges the stereotypical ideas um especially a woman like me who has got an opinion you know, I, I don't expect people to agree with me, but I do at least expect them to listen to me and explain why I'm wrong. Um, and, you know, I was just being bullied. And I thought, no, you know what, life... I, I did want to do the job, but it almost destroyed me. But the, the Andy Holt, the superintendent, again, he, he stepped in and he absolutely fought my corner. And... Um, he gave me a short stint in child protection because that's what I wanted to do. And that made me see that there was light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Um, and it, it made me stronger. Um, so when you say child protection, what was your first assignment? First, i tell you what the first job I did. It was a little boy, uh, sorry, a little girl who had been sexually abused by her 12-year-old cousin mm. and the little girl was she was five five yeah oh. she was five and she had told her mum um what happened <sighs> and I was only a bit of a you know a rookie really you know not that experienced but a mum of four of four kids and the the, the attitude was that a five-year-old can't be trusted, um, that she was too young to, uh, well, to give evidence or to, to be listened to. But I I had, you know, quite heated debates to say, well, I have got four kids, and if my five-year-old came and told me um, that somebody, and, and what she said was that her cousin had put his peenie-weenie in her tum-tum, that's what she said. And she told her mum, I said, if my 
five-year-old told me that, I would want something doing about that. Yeah, of course. I would want to give her an opportunity to talk about it. And and you, you can't decide here where that might lead. And and to his credit, my um, sergeant said, OK, well, have a go. And I brought the little girl in and very... Um, very low key, but in in a room not quite as official as this, but like a living room with a, a couch and a little table and colouring crayons, and um, she had a, an appropriate adult to you know to support her, and we were colouring and chatting, and she repeated what she'd said very clearly, and she drew a picture. Um, obviously, I knew who the cousin was, and that opened a pathway to go and speak to him. When I brought him in, um, he was only 12. Now, the age of criminal responsibility is 11. So he, is o- he was over the age of criminal responsibility. But once I started to um, make inquiries, he suffered from sickle cell anemia. And he had also had damage to his frontal left lobe of his brain, which affects your inhibitions. He had no inhibitions. I went to the school, and the school were absolutely over the moon that I was there because he had sexually abused or inappropriately touched five other girls. Now we could never, we couldn't prosecute him, but he needed help, and the girls in his school needed protecting from him. So it's a question of looking at the bigger picture. And he actually was sent to a special school. That the the little girl who had been abused was you know given support and the help she needed but but I saw that as a really successful job but it had been a a battle and pretty much every job was a battle normally you were fighting against social services who wanted to work with the family and I realized that as a police officer you weren't dealing with victims really you might do the initial interview but then all your work was in relation to the offender and my skills are with victims and with people who are perhaps hostile to the police and, um, you know, vulnerable people, families, um, witnesses, victims and, and serious crime. So I came out of child protection and I, I, I focused myself on getting into CID, going into the major incident team, serious crime and... Uh, qualifying as well as a family liaison officer. Before we got get to that, then I've just got a question. So, if a child does something to another child, what what generally is the outcome in, in that? Because, like you said about this age of criminal responsibility, do you have to look at the background of the perpetrator. It's very, it's and... very, very unusual. Um, that was the only case where I had any sexual crime where the perpetrator was so young. I did work on a. a more than one job but I remember one job with um, a 15 year old lad who murdered um, a a schoolmate who was 11 um, lured him to the house um, we think tried to sexually abuse him and when the the younger lad um, objected um, he, he murdered him how did he murder him? he he assaulted him, I think it was with a frying pan. Um, his mum was at work, and um, but then when he killed him, he actually cleaned up the whole house. He put the little lad in a, in a wheelie bin 
and he wheeled him all the way down some back alleys and dumped him in, in a woods. They say those kids are evil, but what's going through the guy with the lad's mind? He was very damaged. You know, he'd had a very disrupted childhood. Um, he was actually quite a lonely lad, and, and on that case, I actually worked with the offender's family. Yeah. Because, you know, if you've got kids of your own, both families of the guy who, of the little lad who was murdered and the lad who had murdered him, the families are victims. Of course, you know, yeah. They're losing a son. And, and actually, the family of the offender is often judged and they're very lonely and they're very isolated. The, the family of the victim gets public support and public um, permission to grieve. So the, the, there's no winners, that everybody's a loser. And I, I think that helped me, m my nature helped me to support that, that lad's mum. You know, through the court process, he ended up in a young offenders institution, um, actually in the same one that one of the Bulger murders murderers was in. It we we've got one near us, in um, in Earlham. Um, it's in Earlham, the Young Offenders Institute, and you know they they do get a lot of help because the intention is to try and help them change, recover. I guess the jury's out whether they actually do. But again, that that you know that's not my that wasn't my role. Um, but I, f I felt I was doing something worthwhile. I felt I was making a difference, and and I absolutely loved my job, Sean. Um, that part of it, anyway. Uh, I increasingly felt that I was doing a good job in spite of the organisation. Yeah. Um, especially as a family liaison officer, you know. The police wanted the family to be supportive, to share information, but often when the chips were down, they didn't want to allow you the time to hold the hand through court, to go to the trial, to, to do the little things, which is actually what the families want. It's the little things that count. Um, and I increasingly felt that when those families were no longer useful... There were surplus to requirements, and, mm. and I felt I was doing a good job in spite of the organisation. Um, so basically, once the officers got what they wanted, once they got the, the conviction, that's it? Senior officers, yeah. increasingly, because of resources, because of the time needed, because to them it wasn't a priority. To me, and with my... And, and I've never... I still haven't changed this opinion... I believe that the way the authorities treat these people who come to us for help, um, that if, if they're not handled in the right way, in a sensitive way, that damage them, damages them far more in many respects than what they've actually been through. Because they, most people expect the police to be fair and reliable and honest and to be able to trust them individual police officers you usually can there's good and bad everywhere but usually yeah. you can for me it's when the people at the top pull the rug away um and then you're powerless to challenge that and you know if you speak to police officers now you know most of my ex-colleagues can't wait to get out 
they see a, a, an organisation that is out of date, they haven't got the resources, people are not supported in the way they should be. Um, we have got a criminal justice system that is falling apart at the seams. Um, even my trust has gone, you know, and that is a very sad indictment from somebody who gave 16 years to a job I believed in. People just don't respect the police anymore. I've seen even the community police what go around now. I mean, I, I personally think they're just like glorified security guards, but they're doing their job. And the way people speak to them and the way they, they, you see them getting pushed around and stuff, it, they, don't, they don't need that, you know what I mean? They've come in to do a job that they obviously care about, but they are... They don't have any real powers. No. They don't have really any authority. And I'm not I'm not wanting to um to discredit individuals who are doing a really good job, but it it's the government's attempt to do policing on the cheap. You know? Even police officers now are not paid a salary they should be paid. You know, increasingly or often they wanted to do they go you know you, you go to a burglary it's ticks in boxes most members of the public now don't get a police officer to visit them when they're burgled and if they do it's one one van crew will go on the night then that's handed to somebody else and somebody else you get a, a you know an 80 year old old lady who wants to she doesn't want to repeat the same thing 10 times over no you know and actually that undermines the 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 sense of ownership of police officers, because if you know there's ten people involved in a job, you get one, one sort of um, not it's not loose cannon. One, one weak link in that chain. They know you're not going to be able to pin it down to them, and it undermines the whole process. There's no ownership of anything, and so you get no responsibility for anything and no accountability. And ultimately, that means we get a shit service. And it is. It really, really is. Now, the courts, you know, system is falling apart. When you get judges criticising Greater Manchester Police uh, openly in the media, that is a big deal. You get barristers saying that, you know, there is no legal aid now. It, you know, if you're rich, yes, you can get a, a decent defence. If you're not rich, if you've got no money, you're basically pleading because solicitors get a fixed fee for attending a police station. You plead on the first, you know, the first appearance, they get the same money as they do if, if they spend months on it. The whole system is not working. And so that is why public trust in it is breaking down. They don't get paid to fight your case, do they, basically? No. Absolutely. You get paid to take a guilty or not guilty, and that's it. We're bargaining like yeah. the American Plea system bargain. bringing yeah. it over here. Absolutely. Unless you pay. Absolutely. Be guilty, basically. I mean, I saw, I mean, I don't know if it's wrong, but I saw a really great um, drama this weekend on Netflix, and it's called Unbelievable. Oh, I've started watching it. It's fabulous. Yeah. Now, I watched that with my background and seeing how, you know, hundreds of rapes of. of vulnerable kids by the grooming gangs were not even recorded and it just absolutely struck a note to me about how it's it's a very a bit like three girls it's a very powerful visual example of the damage that is done by those who are in positions of trust um you know we we hold a big responsibility to do it properly and honestly and 
Look at the big picture. Look at the lives that are destroyed by somebody not doing a proper job. Job. And And it breaks my heart. So before we get to the grooming gang stuff then... You're, you Sorry, said, I do go on a bit. No, no you're fine. We go, oh, no, no, no. With this podcast, we like the guests to talk. It makes our talk. job easier. Yeah. What do you want me to talk about? Naked <laughs> <laughs> <Naked> kids, <laughs> murders, <laughs> abuse, all, all. We're going to get to shift. all of it, hopefully. So you said you started out in Manchester, Moss Side. Then you went over to child protection. Are you still in the Manchester region before you go over to Rochdale? Yeah, uh, Rochdale. Um, I, I never worked in Rochdale. Okay. I, Rochdale is an area that is covered within Greater Manchester Police. Right. Um, so, you know, I I was based in, well, when I joined in Moss Side, mm-hmm. then I, I worked on, it's called the C Division, Longside, Moss Side, you know, not actually city centre, but all the universities, um, all that area. So quite a generally quite a deprived area um quite a transit a lot of lots of drugs we've got the mri so um which is a teaching hospital the the, the oxford road corridor in manchester you've got the curry mile and you've got lots of immigrant workers you've got um lots of drug addicts unfortunately lots of homelessness it, it was a very um colorful area to work in but very rewarding, actually, because I found that the people that I dealt with really appreciated what you did for them. Um, yeah, I, I did love what I did, and I always treat it, I, I believe in do as you would be done by. And if I could say, I would always ask myself, well, if this was me, what, what would I want? And that's how I tried to do my job, and, and it, it does shine through. People are not stupid, especially nowadays. We're all savvy to what's going on. Um but Rochdale was part of Greater Manchester Police area. Were there any high-profile or shocking cases before the Rochdale case that you're working on? <sighs> Where do I start? <laughs> any murders? I worked on loads of murders. Okay. Um, that was my kind of my bread and butter. Um, the first murder I worked on was a young lad called Aon Shirley, and he was part of the Longsight crew. A young lad, actually. Um that was, he'd actually gone out to get a takeaway. And when he was going back to the house, he was shot and killed by the opposing gang. Um, we, I don't know if it's changed now, but uh, definitely when I left the police, we'd never, we'd never, um, we'd never charged anybody with his murder. But I, that was my first job as a family liaison officer. Um, and, and, you Do you know, have to tell the family? Is that your yeah, job? Yeah, very often. So you'd, you know, you'd be at home, might be, Aeon was shot in, in the evening. So you get a call at home um, as a fact, because I was a detective that and an investigator and in the major incident team. That was my day job. As a family liaison officer, that's a, a voluntary role and you have to apply and you're interviewed and then you get a lot of extra training on bereavement and different cultures because you work with different you know different backgrounds yeah um and and they're very difficult conversations to have you know you turn up at somebody's house um and on the gang murders the families in general know the police very well (coughs) because they've had the you know the the sons locked up for 
petty crime, really. Um, and it tends to escalate, usually dealing or running around all the alleyways in Moss Side on the bikes. And they probably know the murderer as well, don't they? Well, you see, as an FLO, Family Lays Office as an FLO, as an FLO, your job is to become trusted by the family. That is your role. So your first job is to tell them that the, the, the son, I'll say son because it usually is, that the son has been murdered. And obviously, as a mum, it breaks my heart. I mean, my son lost his, his daughter. You know, I've lost my little granddaughter before she was three. I don't Does know how it... you could do that job and then go home and just get on with normal stuff. I think it depressed me. It'd give you kind of PTSD, wouldn't it? Oh, I've got that. <laughs> Let me tell you, know, I, it definitely has changed me all this. But I think the only the only way you can deal with it, for, anyway, the only way I could deal with it was to know that I was doing my best. Yeah. And I believed that, I actually believed that there would be people as good as me at doing it, but there would be nobody any better than me in trying to kind of hold the hand through a, what is the worst journey of any mum's life or any father? The fathers were often absent fathers, actually. It was normally mums and children. And, um, you know, I would fit into those families. So I became a... When you'd knock on the door initially and, and you know, sort of say, I'm, you know, can I come in? You think they know? They do when, when, yeah, yeah. They, 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 you will do. You, I mean, it's every mother's nightmare in of that that knock on the door. Yeah, it, quite often, to be honest, they already knew from somebody who was at the scene. Yeah, would ring up, and sometimes they would already be at the hospital. That was really difficult because you'd have their son in um, in a room, and the hospital and the forensic teams would not let the family in. They couldn't touch the the, the deceased. Because obviously that's forensically. Friends, yeah. um, that would make preserved. the parents hysterical, wouldn't it? It is. It, that is the very. It's a very difficult part of the process, um, and I would always try and say, "Well, you know, you can see them, um, but I'm sorry. We, you know, we want to get the person who did this, and yes, but as soon as po- humanly possible, usually within a day or a couple of days." The mothers want a hug. You just want to go and. Mm cry and hug and they're in shock um it it, it's really it's your worst it is your worst nightmare and that's why i think the role of the flo is so special because you have to be the best flos are ones who can step out of the role of the police for a moment and then step back in. Sure, compassion. Yeah, you have to. You know, I mean, I, I've been criticised for caring too much, becoming too emotionally involved. Well, I do care, but I never lost sight of my professional. You, you've got to combine the two, and I think one without the other is no good. You, you need both of those skills. I think if you didn't care, you'd be heartless, wouldn't you, really? Yeah, how could you not care? You'd have to care, yeah. Like all these kids who have been groomed, I do care. Yeah. I bloody care. And for me, any police officer who doesn't care is in the wrong job. It That's the way I see it. I always say, if, if, if any of my family got killed, I wouldn't go to the police, they're groomed. I wouldn't go to the police, I'd go and kill themselves, which is wrong, I know, but 
I think a lot of people think that. Think they haven't got no trust in the police. But there are some very, very good police officers. Um, the, for me, the problem is those at the top. Yeah. Because, you know, what are you, you know, shit falls down to the bottom. And if you've got the attitudes at the top, we're not going to do this. We're going to turn a blind eye to all these paedophiles who are raping kids. You know, don't look that way because we know it's there, but we're not going to look. That allows any bad apples in, in the crate to say, well, I'm not going to do it. If they don't do it, we're not going to do it. You've got to send the message out loud and clear from the top that we are going to do this. We are not going to turn a blind eye. They've got to retire eventually, though, haven't they? They've got to be young blood at the but top But they're not eventually. accountable, and that is a big part of my battle. You know, um, Chief Constable, when I was trying to highlight naively what was not being done with the grooming gangs... I trusted Peter Fayou as the chief constable. I'd seen the, the, the brief magazines where he was writing. I, I couldn't print it in my book. I wanted to, but the, the legals wouldn't let me. We had a, an internal force magazine that said he wrote this massive article, Do the Right Thing. This was when all this was sort of going through my head about what wasn't going on. Um, you know, listen to people. If something's not right, challenge it. And Well, when I went to see him, no. I tell a lie. When I tried to go and see him, he's never met me to this day. Um, he tried to sort of bat me off and turn a blind eye. And he knew what was going on. I told him, many other people, he retired with an enormous pension. He walked out the door, he's home and free. And I'm using him as an example. That's every chief constable. That is every senior police officer. We were talking about the Noonans. You know, the, the decision not to go in when... He took a, a young 11-year-old boy into a house, drew the curtains when he was under surveillance. Well, you know what? He should be held accountable for The person for that. at the top should be sacked for that. Yeah, they should. But it's such a massive... It's everywhere, isn't it? Because yeah. I, I'm an associate member of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. I don't know if you've heard against them, no, Lee. Neil Wood's the undercover cop that we interviewed. He heads the Leap uh, faction in the UK, actually. And they, you know, they're they're mostly police and prosecutors and judges. And I've watched their videos on YouTube, and they say, "Look, we joined the police to arrest the bad guys, the paedophiles, murderers, rapists." I was assigned to infiltrate a student group, get them smoking cannabis, and arrest them all at the end of the month. This was at the peak of the war on drugs in America, when there was almost a million arrests a year for weed possession. And they're like, "This isn't. This is not what we signed up for." No. So Neil Woods, he's a cop in this country and the reason he quit was he thinks that the war on drugs he, he wanted to get the bad guys the traffickers and he was assigned to go undercover and it, you know with the, with the low level users and he heard the sad stories and he said it was mostly the low level users getting arrested yes. all 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 the senior police the cared about was arrests yeah. and it, it got to the point the tipping point with him whereby he was assigned an undercover partner and he had a bad feeling about the guy, and he didn't go out with him. Two years later, that potential undercover partner got arrested. The drug gangs had paid him to go and get hired by the police. So Neil's thing is that there is the illegal black market in drugs gets bigger every single year, Absolutely. and that has completely decimated the purpose of the police. Because I agree. Robert Peel said, you know, the police is take person A out of society that's harming person B, but if you're arresting mostly low-level users. Who are they harming themselves? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's perhaps. I thinking my my opinion is that we need absolutely massive changes in in the country. 
we need radical change. We have lost the drug war. You know, prohibition does not work. We have alcohol. As a police officer, I saw far more violence and um, bad things connected to alcohol than I ever did with weed. I, I don't, I don't take drugs. I'm not interested, but I like a drink. Cigarettes kill people. Mm. The money that is thrown at addicts, and they are addicts, most of them. You know, g- women working in, in um, young women in prostitution. A lot of the time, it's to feed a drug habit. habit. Many of the homeless that we've got, I mean, Manchester is riddled with homelessness. They are sad people who are addicts. If them, and, and the reality is that when they get to prison, drugs are far more freely available, than, as you probably know, than yeah. they are outside. So it's a waste of money. And at the same time, we have a criminal justice system that is creaking at the seams. We have hospitals that we can't afford enough nurses. We have Everything crumbling around us. Read the secret barrister. That is fantastic because he, you know, he's, and, and if we redirected all that money that's being wasted into cure and help and helping addicts come off the drugs. But the privatizing it like the American model. Let's just make money off the commoditization of prisons. It's prison a big cattle market, isn't it? Commodities, yeah. We need radical yeah. changes and we ain't going to get it in this country because you only have to look at the fiasco with Brexit. It's not about what the people want. That is about politicians, in my opinion, looking for their pension at the end of the road. They're looking when we get, you know, when we get flirted from Westminster, we'll go over to the EU. And nobody will know what we're doing. Or, but actually, the the whatever you think, the referendum said we leave. But the last few years have been all about people trying to. It's just talk. Talking. Um, yeah, it's just all so I don't think no action, have just changes. So. so going back to the murders then that you were on, the high-profile cases, what, what other ones did you were you assigned to? I worked on, um, there was a, a dub, the biggest case that I worked on, it was called Operation Viola, and it was um, a young lad called Yu Kao Chin and Tyrone Gilbert. I, I was originally the FLO for Yu Kao Chin, and I was part of the team investigating that murder um i actually went to the funeral with the family what had they done he was actually yuko was actually a very he was only a young lad good looking lad young family did a bit of dealing um and he was driving through manchester on, on a main road um, absolutely peeing it down one friday <coughs> night another car overtook it and shot through the window and they shot him dead so it could have shot anybody, any member of the public. And now um, at, I went. I was the FLO on that <coughs> from day one. Um, I went to the funeral and I went to the wake. I just left the wake um, and about half an hour later there was a car pulled up at the end of the close where the family lived and there was a, a drive-by shooting into the close. They shot and killed another lad at the, at the funeral, Tyrone Gilbert. But there were kids and families and everything in at that. At the funeral. At Darren Laycock's funeral, at his mother's funeral. His mother's funeral, there was this incident there. Yeah, I remember that. I do remember that. Um, I th- that's so disrespectful, that. Well, the, you know, the, the, they've got no respect for people who are just, you know, burying the sun, for God's sake. So so I worked on that job for two years and um, we ended up with... Colin Joyce was charged and convicted for... Yeah, I think he went down for 39 years. 
Liamos got 38 years. Based on his side, then? Yeah. Oh, God. And GMP did a big campaign um, showing how they would age because they they won't be eligible for parole. We had Narada Williams and Ricardo Williams and I've forgotten all the names. But there was about 10, 11, I think, I think. And I worked on, on that all the way through. We had a six-month trial actually here in Liverpool. So every day I would um, take two families all the way to Liverpool and we'd sit in the trial and it was heartbreaking really. But um, a, 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 actually a very... And, and actually Colin Joyce and Lee Amos were at the top of the Gooch gang, probably these people above them, but they were... After they were put away, the gangs kind of went into a, a bit of a lull because it had left a vacuum... Um, I, I don't think we've gone back to those days, <coughs> but that's because GMP put resources into fighting gun crime. Um, I wish they'd put the same resources into fighting child abuse um, because they haven't. You know, there should be more in child abuse. The gun crime is that adults aren't they? the child has doesn't have a say. That, you know that, what I mean? That's kind of my take on it. You know. Yeah. Um, Having shootings in the street is never good, is it? No, it's not you know? good, but there are um, adults. And but for me, If they kids, kill one another, they kill one yeah. another. But, but a know, child doesn't have that no. choice. And that's why I've never been able to let go of this, because that is the first duty of a police officer, to protect the vulnerable. And these kids who were being, who are being sexually abused very often don't have people protecting them. That's yeah. why they're vulnerable to start with. And that doesn't make the families bad families. It just means that lots of them are struggling with other issues. And the paedophiles and the, the gangs can identify very clearly the most vulnerable kids. And they're the ones they target. And that is when the police and the social services, who are the protective agencies, should step up and protect. And it is not that they didn't know what was going on. Even in the mid-90s, um, Anne Cryer, she was the MP for Keithley. And um, she was going, she had parents coming to her surgery saying, my daughter's being groomed, well, grooming, we didn't use grooming then, is being sexually abused by these gangs, but um, and nothing's being done about it. She was going to Parliament and saying, what is being done? MPs of all political persuasions just turned a blind eye and said they were not going to investigate these crimes. Um, so it... You end up with vigilante groups springing up because the parents and the community know what's going on. Um, but you you mentioned Sean about um, you know crime reporting and um, what was happening over these years was the government was funding police forces based on performance indicators. So P and PIs were all geared towards acquisitive crime so a burglary a theft from a motor vehicle a robbery if you solved a robbery your division would get a tick in a box if you potted a motorist who was parking on a zebra crossing you'd get a tick in a box you get a child of 11 who's being raped on a daily basis by a gang of paedophiles they don't get a tick in a box because it's not an acquisitive crime. So let's turn a blind eye. Let's not waste resources on something that we're not going to get any brownie points for. We're not going to get, you know... They've made life into, like, a multiple choice, haven't they, in a way? You know what I mean? 
It's about A, priorities. B or C, A, B or yeah, C. They, well, they have, but priority, it's about priorities. Mm. And, yeah, if you get burgled, it isn't nice, but you do recover from it unless it's a particularly extreme burglary or you get your radio stolen out the car. Yeah, it's annoying. You claim on your insurance and you get it, and pretty much that's what they do now. But if you're a kid who is, you know, groomed and then raped... They've got no defence. And then those meant to protect you turn a blind eye and you see the man who has destroyed your life, really, walking around the streets of Rochdale, say, or Telford, or Rotherham, or Oxford, or Huddersfield, all these towns and cities where these trials were just... where these... Um, this abuse was ignored, those kids are damaged for life. And, and I'm, I mean, after here, I'm going to Rochdale. I'm taking some of the girls from Rochdale today and tomorrow to do various psychological assessments. And I'm still very heavily involved. It hasn't stopped. How did you get onto the Rochdale case then? What happened was um, I'd, I'd seen a, a previous grooming trial, Operation Augusta, um, and, I mean, that's all covered in my book. But... For people who are watching this video might not have read your book, what, what was Operation Augusta? What happened was a young girl died in Rochdale. Strangely enough, it, she died in Rochdale. She had been sexually abused and groomed by um, many, mainly Pakistani men. Um, one Pakistani man had given her a drugs overdose and she died. So at the same time as this, uh, there's a programme on TV here that's called Dispatches, and they were doing a programme called Edge of the City. And in the process of filming that documentary, they discovered that young girls in South Yorkshire were being um, groomed, um, approached, raped, and uh, they were going through a whole series of different of children that were all connected on a friendship group, but it was a bit like a conveyor belt, one in, one out, one in, one out, and they were being raped by, you know, many, many men. Um, numbers passed around. And this young girl was called Victoria Ogoglia. Victoria died just as d dispatches had been made, and um, they prevented that programme from being aired. With hindsight now, it eventually was, but they went to court to kind of delay transmission. Um, with hindsight now, I believe that Greater Manchester Police knew, the, the bosses knew we had this problem. It had been there for years. Um, and they thought, right, we've got a young girl who's died. We've got a programme that's going to go out on telly. We're going to be in the ship when this goes out, if we've ignored it. So they put together a very small team, origin initially three of us. They wanted action. I'd I, I didn't see that action then. Before the programme yeah. comes out. Yep. Save the girls. Absolutely. You know when the programme went out, there wasn't the public outcry they anticipated. But by that time, we had grown to... We had a, a DI, Mark Wildig, who was a great guy. We knew exactly what was going on. When we approached social workers for a whole... We had a long list of kids before we even went on that job. As we approached social workers, they were saying, thank God, we have been trying to get this dealt with for years. Police don't want to know. Um, it was seen basically as the, 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 the rough end of the stick. Um, and in those days, you had child protection units. We still do. But they only dealt with abuse that was carried out by a, 
a perpetrator who had either care, custody or control of the child. So a parent, an uncle, a scoutmaster, a teacher. If it was a stranger, which the grooming gangs were, it was dealt with by CID, they weren't equipped to deal with, with child abuse. So nobody had ownership, so it was just ignored. Um, and as we started to put it all together, we ended up with about 200 people on a database, 200 um, offenders on a database. We had dozens of children. The social workers knew what was going on, but we weren't in full investigation mode. But um, myself and another officer, we wrote a report. We went to Greater Manchester Police Command Team and... Um, you know, explained what was going on. This was after many months, many months, maybe a year. Um, and it was accepted and they resourced a full major incident team to investigate what was going on. Uh, at that same time, Norman was, my husband was terminally ill with bowel cancer. Mm. Um, work actually had been an escape while he was mm. undergoing like two and a half years of chemotherapy. So it, it was, life at home was pretty rough, but but I believed that that we were going to make a difference. We were going to put these men away. And I put my heart and soul, as did other officers on that, Mark Wildig did and um, a couple of other officers. Um, I believed we were going to, we were going to deal with this, you know. We were going to send out a message loud and clear. We had all the social workers on board. We had professionals. We had rec all sorts. And then... The command team resourced Operation Augusta. The major incident team then brought in indexes to put all the information we'd gathered onto the homes database. Do you, do you know what that is? No. It's the Home Office Large Major Inquiry System, and it was brought in after Jack the Ripper, so we didn't uh. didn't forget, you know, what what we'd gathered. Yeah. Um, so it was all a full singing dancing job. Um, I went off in March two thousand and five because my husband was in his final weeks. Um, that job was a runner. I came back to work after he died, and the, the job had died a death. Mm. There was not one prosecution. Nobody had been arrested for all the rapes. Mm. I, I was just... There's no TV programmes coming out, was there? So it was back to just shovel under the carpet again. I was just in shock, again. complete shock. Mm. But the abusers hadn't gone away. No. The kids were still being abused. What is going on? And, and I couldn't make any sense of it. Because these kids were from poorer neighbourhoods, if they would have been from wealthier neighbourhoods, would that have been different? In my very strong opinion, 100%, because the parents, and would first of all, would have made a stink. And secondly, what was being said about these kids in that time was that actually they were prostitutes that they were making a lifestyle choice, that they were bad kids, that they weren't credible witnesses. All, I can't swear, can I? Yeah, you can. Well, all bollocks, <laughs> actually. Complete... After 12 or 13-year-old make a life career choice. Yeah, it was it? complete and utter nonsense. These kids were the most vulnerable in our society. And the police, I knew what was going on, the big bosses knew what was going on. That was the highest decision-making group in Greater Manchester Police. What on earth is going on? What the fuck is going on here? We've got the evidence. It's on the Holmes database. We've got a major incident team. Where's the job gone? These men haven't gone away. 
I've, but I've just buried Norman. I've got four kids, two of whom still at school, and I'm thinking... You want justice? I did want justice, but I didn't have any evidence. I had the evidence in my head. I'm a, I'm a DC. I'm not a chief constable. Yeah. I went and I addressed the issues with the senior officers, not with the chief constable on that job. But I was not in a good place and I didn't have any evidence. All I was told was that there was insufficient evidence. That was complete and utter nonsense. And I knew that in my heart. Um, but what am I going to do? You know, what am I going to do? I did try. But in the end, and I, was, didn't have a, I wasn't as long in the tooth as I am now. I've travelled a big journey since then. When Norman died, I, I travelled a, a very... I climbed a lot of mountains. Um, you know, obviously, I lost Norman and then I lost Macy just before she was three. You know, she was... 24-hour care for two and a half years. I, I'm i a lot stronger now than I was in 2005. Just to make clear for people watching this, that was your granddaughter? It was my granddaughter, was yeah. <coughs> yeah, well, she, the NHS made basically a cock-up and they gave her air instead of oxygen and in one day she could no longer have a bottle. She went blind overnight. There were very serious errors, but... Um, so I've, I've dealt with a lot and it's made me a lot stronger... But in 2005, with Operation Augusta, I just thought, what can I do? And eventually I just had to walk away, but it never left me. I knew, I knew that it was happening. It had opened my awareness to what was going on. So in those intervening years, from 2005 to 2010, I went, I was on the major incident team, um, I, I, you know, the, the kidnapping of the little boy who was kidnapped in Pakistan, I don't know if you remember, mm-hmm. Sail, Saeed, and he was kidnapped and they, they thought his dad was involved. I worked on that for a while. It was a gang in Pakistan, actually, that kidnapped him. Lots of, lots of, um, a, a very, you know, house fire that killed lots of kids and other gang, lots of, of, of big jobs. And I wasn't in child protection, um, but I was getting on with my career I was starting to reinvent myself, you know, and trying to put my life back together again. Um, and then out of the blue in 2010, I get a phone call and I knew that there was a job breaking in Rochdale. I knew that what had happened, um, there'd been a routine property review of the, of the exhibit system. And the officer doing that had found this exhibit, which turned out to be a fetus. Oh. Um, so it, it it was, you know, we were all talking about it at work because that fetus had been seized in a termination. Mm. Um, the family didn't know. No consent had been gained. Mm. That the child had been only 13 years old, just 13, when she'd mm. had the termination. So it was the talk of, of GMP. Mm. Um, alongside that, her sister, um, who... Uh, so this, and we knew that this this little girl had been groomed and sexually abused by gangs of Pakistani men mm. in Rochdale. Alongside that, um, we had another child who had already spoken to the police um, two years previously, um, but Rochdale CID had lost evidence, had been overwhelmed though with the the volume of of the work and and that investigation had been shelled because she'd been um written off as a, a not 
as not a credible witness making a lifestyle choice. She was choosing to be abused. And the, the child whose fetus we had, her sister at that same time, who had also been 14 and 15, um, had been uh, abused by dozens of men, um, but had been arrested on suspicion of being a madam. And so the family were traumatised and weren't prepared to speak to the police. But GMP had reopened this investigation. My belief is because they couldn't ignore a fetus. It was something physical. Um, and I got a phone call out of the blue saying, can you come and speak to us? Um, so I went up to Nexus House, which is the headquarters of serious crime. And um, they asked me to join this job. And as I sort of discussed, spoke about it, it was very clear, it was identical to Operation Augusta, identical. Um, offender profile was mainly Pakistani men, uh, very, uh, much, much older Pakistani men. Um, victim profile was vulnerable white children between the ages of 11 and 16. But these Pakistani men, are they just like, to look at, would they just like be working in like a corner shop or a, a chippy or whatever? Yeah, I mean... Often the way it begins is that um, a younger guy, a younger lad, maybe 20, will approach one of the kids and will flatter them. And if you bear in mind these kids, a lot of them have got very little in their life. You know, they're, they're, they're often they're, they're living with just a mum, very often. Buying mom, the phone and telling how pretty they are. And... Well, the, the, these kids are often starved of attention. They, you yeah. know, they don't have a lot of money. So somebody turning up and, and buying them a necklace and saying, you're beautiful, and here's a mobile phone, and come on, you know, come, come let's go up the moors in my flashy car, and let's go and visit my uncle who's in Rotherham, or let's, you know, come and have a pizza in the shop, uh, come and have a kebab in the shop, or yeah. let's get a bottle of vodka. That's how it begins. And then the kids think that these men are the friends. And then before you know it, you know, within a couple of weeks, they're then taking one of their friends along as well. So there's two of them. They think it's a giggle. Um, in, in the operation span, they were actually taking them into two kebab houses mainly, um, where there was like a, a, a bit of a dive of a room upstairs and there'd be a TV and they'd watch a bit of telly. Then it'd become porn and then they'd get them absolutely pissed out the tree. And, you know, the, 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 and then they'll, they'll, they'll rape them and then they'll pass them on to other men who will rape them as well, or they'll take one kid. We had one house, um, which was used as a pretty much a, a sex den, where they would take one child often to rape. And they'd have maybe ten men in a room, and this is, I'm saying in the words of one of the girls that I interviewed, you know, that her words were that the men would pass you around like a ball. Now, that had been going... We, Rochdale knew that was going on in 2008. They did, it, it was allowed to die a death and disappear. I'm approached to, to go and speak to these kids, to one family in particular, who actually didn't even want the police through the door. Understandably, they didn't even know about the fetus in our property system. And, and if you think of the older Hay children's uh, organ scandal, really that is a replica of what was done there. They'd seized, uh, they turned, Jim, uh, the police had turned up at a termination. Um, and sees that without even speaking to the mum, to the child, to the family, put it in a, in a freezer. Mm. So I'm being asked to go and tell them that we've got this, to gain consent to use it to find DNA, and 
also to bring on board a child that at the age of 15 who had been groomed and abused by dozens of men had been locked up in no, a cell. No, they don't want you going in the no? house. No, would you? I <laughs> no. wouldn't. You know, somebody turned up at my <laughs> no, door no, and they'd done that to my daughter. I'd say, fuck <laughs> off. Yeah. <laughs> you know, get away. I'm going to sort it myself. Now, yeah? Yeah. Well, you know, you they're damaged. But they're damaged far more by what, what the police did to them than in many respects by what the grooming... They don't expect paedophiles to be good people. And the lack of what the police actually did. Well, they, they virtually destroyed the, the life. Yeah. And throughout all that, bear in mind, when I am going to speak, to approach them, they're not being abused anymore. They are trying to pick up the pieces of a broken life and move on. But to their everlasting credit, they allowed me in the house and I made an ally of the mum who is actually... I'm still, you know, very close to them. In fact, I'm going to see them today and tomorrow. Your relationship with the mum was very moving when I watched, is it Three Girls? Yeah. So if people out there are watching this video and they want to watch Three Girls, is that on BBC? It's is on it? BBC iPlayer, it's on Netflix. And it's on Netflix yeah. as well. If you go on my my own web page, if you go on www.maggie.org. Maggie's web page is at the links below this video. It will tell you where to go. You could watch The Betrayed Girls, which is a documentary that I was part of. There's a file on four called um, Whistleblower, because obviously everyone says I'm, that was the first public um, conversation I had about the failures of the, of the police and the CPS. But if you go on my website, it will tell you where to go. If you wanted to follow th- and three... Well, I mean, I'm jumping ahead. Let, let, let's actually go back to your first meeting with the mum. Can you describe what happened? Um, it was pretty... Well, there was actually one initial meeting where I went with an ex-colleague where she basically slammed the door in our face, uh, understandably. The, the guy that I was with was not the most sensitive of... Um, Didn't he say something that was Yeah, he basically said, um, when, she, when she said fuck off, um, he said, look, you know, I know you're not going to speak to us, basically, but we've got to ask you. Um, and so she said, yeah, no, no, I've, I've, we've been here before, you know, you lock my girls up and da-da-da-da-da, um, you know, fuck, I slammed the door in our face. And I thought, so I went back to the Nick and I said to my big boss, look, um, we, you know, we're pretty much on a hide into nothing here. Um, understandably, they don't want to let you, you know, they don't want to speak to us. We've destroyed the lives. Um, and this was two years after. But I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to try and build bridges on my own as a mum to mum, you know, and and see whether, you know, wh- whether I can actually. And it was it was in the December, so over the next couple of weeks and over Christmas and New Year, I, I, I remember the first conversation, ringing her and saying, um, she's called Lorna in the drama. Hi, Lorna, um, it's Maggie. Did you go down with your uniform on, would you? I didn't. After two years in the in the cops, I didn't. I never wore a uniform. Oh, right. Um, I was just dressed in my normal. Gear. More approachable anyway, without a uniform. Yeah, because you know I'm I'm not an official kind yeah. of person. I didn't want people to see me. I think the uniform puts a barrier up. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. And you know, 
<laughs> the only time a uniform was good was when you used to do VLPs to pubs and you used to get mistaken for a stripper. <laughs> 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 you'd walk in, you know, and uh, uh, you'd go in and they'd think you were a stripper. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm the real police. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other time when it came in handy was when you'd go into a pub where there was a big bus stop, you know, we were like pints flying and, yeah. you know, a proper old like set to everybody punching the lights out and I'd be the first one who'd go in very often because you know and I'd go in and say just like being a mum really listen you what is your mother gonna say if I have to go and knock on the door (laughs) and say you're locked up I said so zip it I said all my mates are outside so button it sit down and get on and up sorry miss really sorry miss yeah you're right (laughs) so in, in the documentary then I was really rooting for you to make progress with Lorna so you've gone in, you've got rid of your partner, and how does she start responding to you then? I think, you know what I think the real key was? I think it was my Macy, my little granddaughter, because Macy was very poorly. Um, and, and actually she she died about six weeks after I'd met Lorna. Mm. Um, and I talked about Macy, and I talked about my own kids, and I said to her, look... You know, I've got kids and I understand why you don't trust the police. I understand why you don't want to speak to me. But can you just give me a chance? And she allowed me in the door and then I took her for a brew. And she had the weight of the world on her shoulder. She'd had eight kids. One of her sons had had actually been um, sexually abused in Knollview where Cyril Smith was one of the predators. So you spoke... Mother on mother. Yeah, we just we just were people. Yeah, yeah. I was. Ju- I'm just a person. Just having a brew. Yeah, a... the police was my job. Yeah, but I'm a person first, and how can you not empathise with somebody like that? You know, she's done nothing wrong. Um, yeah, she'd had problems in her life. You know, she'd lost a son. She had a nervous breakdown. In the past, she'd had a, a very violent ex partner. You know, she. But that is normal for for many of these families um we should be focusing our attention on the paedophiles we should be nailing their hats on and we can't do that without the victims telling us what's happened and most of those victims come from a a, a very difficult start doesn't mean that they're not telling us the truth in fact often they've got nothing they've got nothing to gain the only reason they talk to us is to help other kids and prevent them going through it so with with Lorna I keep nearly trying to use a real name (laughs) with Lorna um it was just a very slow uh process we'd go for a brew I'd talk about Macy she'd but at that point I wasn't allowed to talk about the evidence anyway so you're thinking in the back of my your mind you know I'm going to build this relationship with her but at some point I've got to tell her about the fetus yes (sighs) But trust, trust is the key and without trust, you're not going to get anywhere. If you'd have just blurred to the hour on the first day, you wouldn't have even got to see her again, would you? No. no. But, but rolling back, the, when I agreed to go on that job, I was shown policy documents because I told them I wasn't interested. In fact, I told them to stick it because I'd been there and I'd had years of, 
sleepless nights thinking what's happened to these kids in Operation Augusta. And do you know? And this is this is um, this is uh, what's um, what, what's it when you give somebody the first public? I'm telling you something for the first an time. Exclusive. Exclusive. <laughs> this is an exclusive. We have exclusives exclusive. on the True Crime podcast. Um, and I wouldn't be saying this except for the fact that GMP have not even had the courtesy of coming to me and telling me. But Operation Augusta that I have written about in my book has now been reopened by GMP as a result of um, Andy Burnham, the mayor of Manchester, reacting to what I've said in the documentary God. and on the drama. Now, that is proved to me that what I've said all the way through this journey is right. Well, something's hit them, hasn't it? <laughs> well, but they haven't even had the courtesy to ring me. In fact, they went to Victoria's grandma when she's nearly 80 years old, she's blind. Um, I've kind of supported her through this process and um, and told her that it had been reopened. It never come to me. They probably feel you've strong-armed them with the truth and some of them resent that. Well, of course they do, yeah, of course they do. But... I don't really trust them anymore either, which is the the big bosses, not my ex-colleagues. I forgot why I said that, but um, I've lost my thread. It's all right. We were talking <laughs> yeah. about how, in the back of your mind, you've got to tell Lorna at some point about the fetus. You've had your first brew with her, and now you're establishing this relationship with her, and she's revealing more things to you. And where are you planning to take it from there? Um, I think the reason I, I, I mentioned the police was because I was shown policy documents to say that if these kids and families told us what was happening, we would support them right through the process. There would not be a repeat of Operation Augusta. That, yeah. That's why I said that. Okay. So, um, so I'm giving Lorna assurances that if she trusts me, that I will hold her hand right through this process. You know, but she saw very clearly that the only way to stop the abusers from raping many more kids, which was still going on and still is, was to take them to court, to put them away. And a way of doing that was to support her girls in telling me what had happened to them. So little by little, as her trust in me grew, um, she had no doubts that, that these men needed to be put away. She, and she had been trying be, to by going to... She was in case conferences, which are attended by police, social services, crisis intervention, um, all the agencies. She was going to those meetings because her kids had been on the child protection register. She was telling them what was going on and nobody had done anything. One man even threatened to shoot the girls, pulled up in a car with a gun and... And, and pointed a gun at them and said, you know, basically, button it. Um, well, if, what else did she tell you when she started to open up? She just knew what had been going on, you know, that the, the men were picking up her kids in cars, they were going to school to how, pick how them up. How had her kids fallen in with these men in the first place? What happened was um, she, obviously she'd lost her son um, and then she had um, a terminally ill relative who lived in another part of the country they'd had to move to that part of the country to nurse the relative. When the relative died, they moved back to Rochdale but were unable to be um, rehoused in the area where the kids had grown up. So they were put the other, the back of beyond somewhere and at weekends the girls would go and stay nearby where they'd originally 
lived so they could mix with the friends. Yeah. And from that, one, actually, it was a younger girl, had a friend who was already going to the kebab houses. So the younger girl went along, and then she then took her older sister, and then um, the girl who is hot, well, actually, before that, the girl who is Holly in the drama, she went before, it was actually Ruby who went first, then it was Holly, then it was Amber. And it just becomes a, a... you know, a regular occurrence, and it becomes normalised. But didn't one of the girls get paid for taking the girls there? That's what was said, and that is where it, it was actually that. I think it was that thing that ultimately made me resign for GMP, because it, it's really difficult to cover all this because there's so much. Shown. No, I'm real. This is one of the parts I'm most fascinated in because I've been doing a lot on the Epstein case on my yeah, YouTube yeah. channel. And the prosecutors are saying one of the complexities of the Epstein case is that, you know, they, Madam Maxwell went out and got these women, not women, sorry, take that back, girls, um, teenagers, underage girls, went to schools and colleges and got these girls. And some of the girls, after they were groomed into the, doing these, it was massages, but then they turned into sex acts with Epstein. They then went and recruited their classmates. So the complexity for the prosecutors was we've got people who are victims and suspects and they're, they're, they're doing the same thing. So how how do you actually classify that? They're all kids, so they're still victims, aren't they? That, they're all kids, exactly. Yeah. My, my you, you could have said about any of... All these kids were being paid. Yeah. They were getting vodka, they were getting cigarettes, they were being given 20 quid or 30 quid. Kids. They were kids. I 100% dispute that Amber was any different from any of the other kids. And actually, she's been acknowledged as a victim by Rochdale Social Services. There was never any evidence that she was any different from the others. What really happened was that as this family came on board, um, what happened in relation specifically to Amber was she had been arrested by two years previously by Rochdale CID as a 15-year-old child. She'd been put in a cell. She had been raped by, she told me, of two dozen men. There were many, many more than that. Um, And in the course of her interviews, she named them, she described them, she went to Viper ID Parade, which was meant to be the first of many. She picked out, I think it was eight out of ten possible rapists. Um, She pointed out all the locations. She produced a document that named all the men that gave their phone numbers, where they lived, where they worked. That document became known as Document 29, and it was key to the whole of that investigation. What happened, though, she'd been arrested in uh, 2008. So, before I was given permission to speak to Amber, the top lawyer in the CPS, who was head of the um, the complex case unit, scrutinised what had happened in 2008 the, the abuse was long finished. Nothing new had happened in two years. So we were looking at what we already knew. But because she'd been arrested, it meant that we might have to deal with Amber differently. So... As not a credible witness? No, not as a... It's, this is very complicated, and I'll try and simplify it. But if you... The, the Gooch Gang trial that I've just mentioned before, we had two or three key witnesses 
that actually had been participating gang members. So one of whom potentially was even in the car at the time Tyrone Gilbert was shot. Well, aren't they just snitches? They're old enough to know better, so they're just rats. But in the law, there are different ways of, of dealing with them. You can't just say, right, you're a, you're a, a dealer, you're a, a gunman, you're, you've shot somebody. We couldn't just say that. Uh, but forget all that, you're going to be a witness in this trial. You have to deal with them in a way that they that all their criminality is addressed first. So they, they might be charged, they may be prosecuted, and then they can come on board as a witness. But there are, there are different ways of dealing with them, and, and those decisions have to be made by very senior lawyers. So because Amber had been arrested, the most senior lawyer looked at what had happened, and after, three, no, after two months of scrutiny in which time I wasn't able to start interviewing. In, at the end of two months, the CPS came back and said, this child should never have been arrested. This child is an out-and-out out victim. This child should be interviewed on video, um, in a video, um, in a, a victim interview suite, exactly the same as all the other victims. And that is critical. That That is what... My journey since then rests on, actually, because that decision was made at the highest level. And at that point, I was given the, the green light to start interviewing her. D does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, because if you're calling a child a prostitute, you're criminalising that person. Yeah. And a child cannot make that decision. So they are a victim of child sex trafficking, paedophilia, abuse, absolutely. all of the above. And the very fact that she's received compensation is proof that she was a victim. But what happened, and I am simplifying it, what happened, she spent months being interviewed as a victim at the request, at the decision of the CPS and the police. I did those interviews. She went to ID parades. She pointed out all the addresses. She provided as much as she humanly could to her sisters. The men that she named also raped other kids. Six months later, she blew that job apart. Absolutely. My opinion is nobody expected her to open the, the can of worms in the way she did. And the authorities decided they didn't want this job to e explode and go mm. into all these areas. So what they did... They pulled it right back, really, and built the case around just one child, which was Holly. Mm. She was absolutely a victim in the same way as all the others. Um, she was treated badly as well. I'm not, I'm not, it, this isn't about a good victim or a bad victim yeah. to me. It's about all victims. So at the end of six or seven months, when this family have put their life on hold every day, have assisted the police through me, because I was given cast iron guarantees. The end of six months, they changed their mind. In one meeting, which I wasn't even party to, they came out of the meeting and, and I was basically says, sorry, Maggie, uh, we've changed our mind. We're not using Amber anymore. It, it was, there was a lot more to it. it there, was, there was a path to that where they were trying to alienate. The, they wanted her to walk away because that would have been the easiest thing. But she never did because by that time, all these kids trusted me. They were at, they'd give their lives up. By making her walk away, look at all the crimes those child rapists would have then 
gone on to commit. And do you and know? Still are, and still and are. And still are. And do you know oh. that every rape that she mentioned or spoke about in evidential videos, um, every rape she mentioned, every man who raped her, not one of those was recorded. There is no record of that on any of the... I've told the Home Office Select Committee about this. Um, and actually, there was an article very recently about... And I think it, I think it was Nottingham, where, where they've picked up... I was telling them years ago. So, and, and the job of any police officer is to record a crime. And if you're not going to um, prosecute somebody, you explain why not. Well, they buried it. Without me opening my gob and keep going on about it, nobody would know about that. So what, but listen to this, it gets far worse because they change the mind. And I was told, you know, in fact, one of the officers said to me, Maggie, Maggie, calm down, calm down. Listen, what would these kids ever contribute to society? They should have just been drowned at birth. And I, and that is the truth. You know, I can't, I, I, Swear to you that every word I say Rising is truthful. It shocks me to this day. How senior was that person? Well, I can't identify. I've got to call one. Not, not the name, but can you say this position? Very senior. Very, Very senior. senior. Very senior. That wasn't a colleague. But when you've got people in positions of authority with those kind of opinions, you're on a hide. And, and I, the drama, three girls, is in that scene. The drama, in my opinion, doesn't go nearly far enough, but it does a phenomenal job of explaining grooming. And I'm very proud of the four years that I worked on that. But it gets worse because I stormed off that job that day um, because I, I would have planted him. I was just ashamed, horrified, shocked, incredible. I just can't explain. And I it's still saying feel a child like, uh, sex... A, a rape victim, a child, is a throwaway person. Absolutely. And after they've put, you know, seven months of their lives on hold mm, yeah. to help us for no reason other than they want to help other kids. But it got worse because, and I'm, I'm skipping through lots of things. Can you find it, your time? Yeah. yeah. You don't hear this, social. You hear, well, I, 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 just I heard about that girl, and I also actually thought, well... You know, if she's taking kids around there and getting paid for it. That wasn't how it was. But that you, was not how it how was. It's how they portray it, isn't it's it? It's how they portrayed it. Because it was it's another way of saying she's a not a credible witness. Exactly. She made a lifestyle choice. She's a bad kid. You know what? She and that is in the drama, you know. But she, she's still she, a kid. She's still a kid. And the damage that they have done to her will never go away. I've done my best to put it right. But it gets worse because what happened was they binned her. I walked off that job. Nobody rang her to say, we're not using you. To this day, nobody has been to her to say, we're really sorry. But what happened eight months, nine months later, once the barrister and the legal team got their head around what had happened, read all the evidence, saw what had gone on, they thought, shit, we can't run this trial without her evidence. But... You know, send somebody else to knock on her door now. She's going to say again, quite rightly, do not <coughs> come near, you know, I think mum would have murdered him. Um, so what do they do? The only thing left to do, they needed her evidence in court. The only way that anyone's evidence can be entered into a court of law is either if you're the offender or you are a witness and you're available to go into the witness box. Otherwise, it's inadmissible. So they They've alienated her as a as a victim, as a witness. 
So what they're going to do, they're going to now go right back to square one and make a, an offender again. But, listen, I've got, I've got to finish this. But any offender, whether it's Jack the Ripper or Yorkshire Ripper or whatever, Fred West, you're entitled to know what you're being locked up for. You're entitled to be cautioned, to have legal advice. You are innocent until you're proven guilty. Everything used against that girl in court was as a result of what she told me on her video interviews. And they never even told her, right? It's not finished yet. They never even told her. So she was portrayed in court as an older madam who had recruited girls for this paedophile ring. That is a complete travesty of the truth no well i i can't to this day you can see how emotional i've I've got to follow it right through to the end so she was portrayed in court in secret because she didn't even know that she was being named on the indictment as one of the um the gang in the conspiracy to you know in the conspiracy um but they decided they weren't going to charge her. Well, the reason they didn't fucking charge her was because any solicitor worth his salt would have got that thrown out at the very first hurdle because the CPS had already decided at the highest level that this kid was a victim. Yeah. Yeah? So she, so, so then I go through all my process and I'm, I can go back Are to Are they that. getting mad at you now, the family? Well, she doesn't know Oh, yet. no, she, she know. didn't know. In fact, I was forbidden from going anywhere near the family. I was treated like the enemy. I was threatened. I was told that you hand your phone over and you mustn't speak to them and you mustn't do this. And I'm what, at home because you're, you're doing your job. Because I was doing my job, and <laughs> and I was saying this isn't right. But they didn't want to hear that. So shoot the messenger. So I was going out my tree at home. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. What is going on? She was the third thing you had to whistleblower than Annie. Yeah, and I spent eighteen months trying to be heard as a police officer. But what happened? And, and I can go back to this, but I, I want to follow Amber's thread. Yeah. So what happened was, I knew what was going on just before the trial, but I'm forbidden from speaking to them. I can't say anything. Um, probably the trial would have fell apart because what they've done to her is unlawful on every level. It, you, you are entitled to know what's being said against you, whether you're a murderer, but she was a child. Eight, nine months... Um, Six months after the trial, when I finally resigned and I was made my decision to speak out publicly, even though I thought I'd go to prison, the other part that I decided to do was a priority. The first thing I did, I went back to the family and I knocked on the door and, you know, it was like, it was like one of them. Understandably, because where have I been for the past year? I promised to be with them and I was forbidden from doing that. Went into the house I sat down with the family and I explained what had gone on. To their everlasting credit, they let me in and they listened to me. Um, and I said, um, I, I said, amongst all the other things, I said to Amber, are you aware that they put you on the indictment? And she did not have a clue. She burst into tears and suddenly the penny dropped, and, and this is covered in the drama just slightly. She said, oh, my God, it all makes sense. she just had another baby, and because she had been named on an indictment as part of a paedophile ring, 
as a, an, an abuser, social services. social services had decided to cover their own backs, in my opinion, that they were going to take her children away no, from her. No. She still didn't know, though, that she'd been named on the indictment. She'd just had a baby about a week before I'd gone back to see her, mm. two weeks. Um, and what they'd done, they'd turned up at the hospital and they'd tagged the baby <gasps> unlawfully because they didn't have a court order. Seven days later, they dragged her into court and to his everlasting credit, the judge was on the ball. Um, and after a year, he threw the whole lot out. And furthermore, he said, if you ever bring this child in front of me again, if you ever bring this child to court again, you bring it in front of me if I'm still sitting or you make me aware if I'm still alive. Now, that is an indictment of the system. And I know from uh, from Amber that the police and the authorities had been going around her mates trying to get them to say she was a bad mother. This is a bloody big example of back covering. But, uh, you know, we're not letting it go. That's shocking, that. Heartbreaking. It, it is, you know, everybody in this country should be terrified because if they can say that about a vulnerable victim of dozens of rapes by dozens of men, what will they say if it suits them? And I am horrified and shocked. And that's why I don't trust the system because they knew it was wrong. Otherwise, why would they have kept it silent? Why would they have kept it secret? Everybody's entitled to a defence. No wonder more and more people don't trust the police. This is at the top of the... This is right at the top, though, because, you know, detectives and bobbies like me yeah. wouldn't have been made part uh, aware of that. In fact, it was only when I started to speak publicly that anybody was aware. And since then, I'm working with barristers. I'm working with Harriet Wistrich, who's the very well-esteemed human rights lawyer who um, she won the War Boys case and the Sally Challen case. They've never heard of anything like it, other than if you've got a um, a, crim- a really serious criminal who's absconded the country, then they might put them on an indictment. Um, but it wouldn't be in secret. I- I'm just shocked to the core still that that was that anybody could think. Just as hasn't that been done, has it? Really? Is right. So when you told the family that, then where did the case proceed next? I took, um, I took the girls to see a lawyer straight away. Um, I provided a, a long statement for the court, and, and that was why that case against her was thrown out. That she got to keep her kids, and but even um, even to this day, even to this day, um, she still hides from the world because she she bears. I think three girls has helped has helped a lot because the public now I think understand grooming and they don't judge these kids they've seen that they are victims they're very vulnerable they are exploited and they're raped on an industrial scale they're not bad kids the authorities are bad because they fail to protect them and that's what I put all my energy and my life's work into trying to shame the authorities into doing what they should be bloody doing because they're not doing it still. These kids walk out, even if they go to court, they walk out the other side of the door um, after the trial and they're on their own. There's nothing there for them. There's you can no... understand how likes of DDL have gone and taken into their own hands and stuff like that, really. I, I understand it. I understand Tommy Robinson, but I've been very careful 
to, to be a voice on my own. Yeah. Because I, everything I say, I, I can prove. Everything I say, I believe. Um, I don't want to give anybody ammunition to There's say... There's nothing they can do to you, is there? I'm not extreme. In any, I'm not political. Yeah. Um, this is about right and wrong and good and bad and trusting the authorities. And I want a, a criminal justice system that works because if you don't have it, you end up with vigilante groups. Yeah. You end up with people taking the law into their own hands. We have to have a system we can trust and we don't. And increasingly, it's getting worse and worse. You know, there are not enough police officers. There are not... There's not the investment in the training. You know, Peter Fowey got rid of the CID. Well, what a joke. You are getting he... more and more like America. I watched Tommy Robinson's interview on James English before he went into prison, and he said his crime was he went up to one of the paedophiles who'd been sentenced and said, what do you think about your sentence? And that caused the paedophile to be stressed out. That was what he did, and that's what he recently went to prison for. Have you got any thoughts on, on what he's claimed and, and what do you think of his situation? I've seen quite a bit of what Tommy Robinson's done. Um, he has been... Th- there are things he says that I don't agree with. He is very extreme. and But I think he's he's spoken from a... I think, if I'm correct, I think... Has he had a niece who was groomed and sexually abused? Yes. I think Some that's, family member, that's, that's yeah. what triggered him, I think. One so... Of the things, yeah. um, He's speaking from the heart, isn't he? He's speaking from personal experience. Yeah, I, I probably don't agree with his methods, but I don't trust the authority. You know, a, a lot of what he said may be truthful, it may not be, you know, because I, I know the power of, of the media. And I also know, like, you know, public relations um, in, in GMP, for instance. It's a, a, a big juggernaut. And they say something and it becomes the, the accepted truth. It isn't necessarily. But I don't know enough about... I've never met him. Yeah. I don't know enough about what is true and what isn't really to have an opinion. I just know that I've been approached by many people over the last few years who, many of whom have their own agenda. And, and I've just tried to steer clear of it and just speak for myself and speak for the kids who don't have a voice and... That they're lost in this system, and yeah, I'm in, and I'm, I can't keep up with the messages, and the, that's why I'm start. That's why I've started the Maggie Oliver Foundation, because I can't do for every child who needs it what I've done for the girls that I support. You can't take too much weight on though, because it won't do your health any good. But who else is going to do it? I, I want you know what. You can't take it all on yourself, though. I know, but that's why I'm trying to. I'm trying to gather around me people with the same, same beliefs. beliefs and passion and determination as I've got that we can make the Maggie Oliver I think Foundation. think that's every mother. It, it is, but it's got to be people who... We need lots of people. There's people going to be watching this who are going to want to help you. Yeah. And those people can click down below this video and see Maggie's website and the foundation links Please. and get in touch. We want what? volunteers. We want, we desperate, we're going to need money. So I want businesses who will, I promise that every penny we get will go to, I'm opening a pilot centre in Rochdale for survivors of abuse to come and help move forward with their lives. So 
they might they might not want to speak to a psychologist they might not want to see a lawyer but they might but i want them to feel supported and it's not just survivors of grooming it, there are many women for instance within the pakistani community who have been forced into arranged marriages they're very isolated they have nowhere to go nowhere to turn but do they have a voice a lot of them do they they don't have a voice they really that must be are horrible imagine alone. someone say to you i haven't got a voice Oh, well, I do. <laughs> and I'm bloody using it. <laughs> That's all I do have. That is actually all I do have. <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying my best to educate the country, to, 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 to educate people about what the authorities have allowed to happen. But the, but the foundation, I feel that my book has kind of allowed me to talk to people who understand what's gone on now and it's allowed me to start to gradually it's not going to be instead of it's as well as but to focus on where we need to go and my foundation is putting together and utilizing all the lessons I've learned since I left the police because oh my god has that been an education you know even just to get a little bit of compensation it's like pulling teeth these kids trying to get legal aid it is an antiquated and it's an abusive system in itself one of the kids has got a bank statement she runs a catalogue and you've got to say right well that that two pound there is that and that and yet you get the offenders the rapists who went to prison for you know a couple of years who have raped dozens of children over many years it is a joke they were not even charged with rape, most of them. Even the guy who got the 12-year-old with special needs, 13-year-old when she was pregnant, with special needs pregnant. We had a fetus. We did paternity. Even he wasn't charged with rape. And he was out of prison within two or three, two, two and a half years. Him and four of the others, who have now long since been released into the community, they are responsible for destroying dozens, if not hundreds of lives. Are they going and back to their own country? No, I was just going to say, yeah. they are fighting extradition back to Pakistan based on their human rights. Well, what about the you human rights You haven't got no human kids? rights to school. You know, well, they, they give up their right to yeah. being protected by the law when they behave in the way they can. The kids themselves have had their human rights trampled all over and you know, that's where my voice is going, to expose this. You, you try and speak to the the, the, um, the authorities, to the government, and they won't comment on an individual case. Well, I'm telling you, they've had millions in legal aid to fight extradition. I was going to ask you that next. I saw that headline. Millions. And it said these guys, the, the rapists are getting millions in legal aid to fight extradition, taxpayers' money. I thought, is that inflated for headlines? No, or I'm going to ask Maggie this and find out it's the truth. It's true. It is absolutely millions true. of taxpayers' money millions, to rapists. Millions and these kids. What kind of a system have we got? Certain a, countries a like Saudi kill a woman. Yeah, it, you know it's absolutely. I I I think it's corrupt in many ways. I think people at the top, um, I, senior police officers, in my opinion, my the blame's going to start there, hasn't it? Well, they're guilty of gross criminal neglect. They knew these kids were being abused. Well, they know the shit when he falls downhill. They should have they should have dealt with this twenty five years ago. They've yeah. allowed it to it's like a snowball. They've allowed it to get bigger and bigger and the paedophiles have operated without being challenged and they've become more sophisticated, more skilled. They are great at avoiding prosecution. They know exactly which buttons to press and what to do. They, you know, they use false names. We should have dealt with it at the beginning. 
we're still not dealing with it properly. The kids, you know, victims... I mean, only recently the CPS decided they were only going to prosecute the easiest of rapes to prosecute. That is official policy. On that basis, none of these grooming gangs would have been prosecuted. None of these serial rapists would have gone to prison. Um, that is the... That is the problem with not tackling things when we know they're there. And for me, this is a crime that if you don't sort it out, if you don't solve it, you are allowing those men to destroy generations more kids' lives. And that's, you know, with a murder, yes, you've got a dead person. Not great. Um, I admit that. But that the damage is done. The damage is done. On the gang-related shootings, very often it's one gang against another gang. You know, if we have to choose where we're going to put resources, well, I my opinion is that this is our absolute priority in this country because sex abuse is, is rife. So you're saying that the grooming gangs have looked at these cases and they've evolved their techniques now. 100%. And what, what are the techniques that they employ now They're then? They're just very skilled. They send the, you know, the younger, good-looking guys into to recruit the kids, to bring them on board. Nice flashy cars. The the number of these kids that will say that they had a boyfriend. They're not a boyfriend. They're a, you know, a a member of the grooming gang. They they are rapists. They are paedophiles. I mean, I'm just talking about uh, the the grooming gangs. I'm not for one minute saying that there are no other kind of paedophiles, because there are. I think Facebook should make more of a restricted clampdown, so... Well, online grooming is a big deal now, isn't yeah. it? You know, parents need to be aware of that and and employ safety mechanisms. Um, family, you know, family abuse is probably a lot more widespread than the grooming gangs. It tends to be, though, um, you know, one person operating in the family who's grooming kids or, I mean, I've dealt with jobs where you've got perhaps a few middle-aged white man living in a tower block who befriend and and sexual abuse because I'm not saying for one minute that this is the only kind of abuse it's just you know this is what I'm talking about today I could talk about a lot of other kinds but you know um it's difficult enough to kind of cover all the all the things that I want to cover just about you know what I'm known for do you find sorry to interrupt do you find not so much grooming but like like child rape and stuff like that do you find more often than not, the person knows the person. Yes. He's a family member. Yeah. Well, yeah, often a family member, often somebody who's trusted. You know, you look at the abuse in the, in the church, you know. I mean, that's another big cover-up. So it's so untrusted too. Yeah, and, and they they make the child feel ashamed or guilty or... And, and that's why I'm trying to educate children to... That's why, you know, I, I worked on four, on three girls for four years and I really feel that it's a great tool to be used to educate young people. Um, you know, if they watch even the first episode of the drama, it opens up a conversation. So a child who in the head is perhaps starting to be drawn into this but won't tell perhaps the parents or won't confide in them because they don't want to be um, identified. It's a really good way to allow them to explore grooming. They can talk about Amber or Ruby or Holly in the drama and they can ask the questions that they want to ask about themselves without actually saying, this is happening to me. So education for me is the key. Knowledge is power. You know, I'm, that's why I talk. I'm, I'm talking to people to try and 
bring awareness. I'd say watch Three Girls. It doesn't go far enough, so well, you need to read my book as well. People are listening finally, though, because there's even adverts on TV now. There's one where I've seen this little kid, and he's like, if, if anyone touches you, tell your mummy or daddy, you know. It, it, I think a conversation... When I first left the police in 2012, um, and I was threatened, I was threatened verbally, I was threatened in writing, that as a police officer, you know what you know because you're a police officer. You be very careful what you do with that information. And and I had months of um, sleepless nights. I couldn't eat. My stomach used to churn. I couldn't make sense of what was going on. Um, my kids were really worried about me. And I sat in my front room on my own, not knowing what I was going to do. I lost my home. I lost my job. I lost my income. You know, I, I could really, I, I could talk about all that. But I chose to try and focus on not on what had happened to me, but on what was happening to thousands of girls throughout the country. Um, and I'm glad I did that. But when I first went public, I resigned in October. In the November, I approached the BBC and I did file on four, um, like a 45-minute documentary. When I did that, nobody knew what grooming was. Nobody had ever spoken about it. And um, until John... He's not really speaking about grooming, it's something slightly different. John Wedger. Yeah. He's talking about how the police, when it got to the level of, they found out the clients were politicians and TV stars, how the orders came down from above to shut the investigations down. So there was cover-ups to protect yeah. the wealthy clients, yeah. powerful people. And, and I 100% agree that there are big cover-ups. This has been a cover-up as well. Um, so, so, But until I spoke, until I went public with this, um, I don't think there'd been another police officer that had. So it's been a very, very lonely journey. You've walked the whole country up to this. I didn't. I was unaware no, of it until your knew. stuff came out as well. So what amazes me is that from me just speaking out, we've come to where we've come. And, and I'd like to encourage everybody who sees something that they don't think is right to speak up, to use the voice, to... You know, not allow the authorities to get away with it, to be brave, to believe in yourself. Because if something doesn't feel right, it normally isn't right. But it's a very scary journey. And I want my centres, I hope to have them all over the country if we can get the funding and the support. Um, I want my centres to be a place where people will come and then gradually they'll feel safer, they'll feel supported. It will make them braver. And there is strength in numbers. And we will make sure, if we all work together, that, that we do address this, that we stop it in its tracks and that it is just, you know, it, we'll never stop abuse. I have every belief that you're going to get the help you need. Uh, I know that you can't do it on your own. I can't you can do make it on yourself Ill. I can talk. I, you, but... you know helps for anyone ill. You know, I didn't. You know helps for anyone ill. <laughs> Say that again. He said, he said, don't worry yourself out. We want people to help you because if you get ill... Ah. You won't Sorry. be able to do it all on your own. You need you need to delegate some of your tasks. I'm You're taking on a mo monumental workload. I know. I, and, and people watching this, please, if you've got spare time, if you've got any of the skill sets, uh, the resources that Maggie needs, please... Buy the book first. And, and buy the book yeah. as well. Follow. Look on my website. Um, you've, you've, um, you've told us about Amber's journey. Now, what about Holly and Ruby? Ruby... Um, They're all damaged. 
they are not the young women they would have been if this had not happened. You said earlier that um, one of them, they were taking that case forward. The One of the victims, the, the case was getting taken forward. They shut everything else out, but they did go to court with one of the cases. One of them, Holly. So well, what, what happened three, within that case? Three girls obviously really follows Holly's journey um, in more detail than it does Amber and Ruby. Yeah. Um, Amber and Ruby were two of the girls that, that I dealt with from start to finish and still do. They Hol- were the sisters? Yes. Holly's journey was started, started the ball rolling in 2008 and she actually smashed up a kebab house. That's how the programme yeah, started, that's how the programme yeah. starts. And she was arrested um, and then um, there were errors within Rochdale CID where they lost forensic evidence, um, and Shabir Ahmed, uh, Daddy, he was arrested back then, and so were a couple of the other guys. So one of the rapists was called Daddy, that was Daddy, his yeah. name. Yeah. Um, who, he was the incidentally, I locked him up. I was the last person he will have seen the last time he was free. Wow. Um, and that came as a result of, a, of a, a phone call we had where it looked as though he was going to get the heads up that we were investigating him. So, um, but but... The, the case was dropped in 2008 and the CPS dropped that case because they said that um, Holly wouldn't make a credible witness, that she had made a lifestyle choice, that she, which is what was always said about um, kids who, who actually were, were victims of sexual abuse. So when we reopened Operation Span, Holly was one of the girls. We had a list of 27. And of that 27, the only two that came on board were... With the girls that spoke to me, that really, you spoke yeah. To, yeah. The other twenty-five were, were, you know, whether they were approached or in the right, right way, whether they, the time wasn't put into encouraging them. But Holly, um, Holly's case was taken to court, and um, she she was flavour of the month, is what I would say, while she was necessary and needed. Mm. But that really, I was I was talking about Holly and other kids that when they the trials finished and they walk out the door, the, the support disappears. Mm. You know, there is nobody there to help them get um, counselling or psych. This isn't actually just counselling they need; it is long term psychological help, and it is non-existent. I'm trying to find um, psychologists. Actually, if anybody here who specialises in trauma, who we are going to be looking for. Um, trauma specialists who are psychologists to, to work with the centre for these kids who need long-term therapy and help. But that is not given to these kids. Um, it's not there. The legal advice isn't there to get um, compensation. The girls that I know weren't even pointed in the direction of criminal injuries compensation. They're just unaware of it all. They are a, com- a commodity. The legal system treats many victims actually as a commodity they're useful but what is good for them comes secondary to that that they're useful when they're no longer useful they are once they've got that tick yeah and and that's what i could never accept and i still do try and go the extra mile maybe that's why i'm doing what i'm doing but i was like that in my job you know on some of the jobs i I actually worked on um a job you know the moors murders oh god yeah well leslie and down his brother um, lived on my patch, and his uh, he was in a house with Leslie and Downey's mum's ex partner, 
Leslie Ann Downey's brother was in the house with his two children and there was um, a woman became obsessed with the Moors murders and she actually set fire to the house, burnt the house down. He got out with his daughter, uh, he got out with one of his children and the other children, the other child died in the fire. Jesus. But I, with, and I worked on that job and it was a heartbreaking job. But um, I, w- there's a, a charity called uh, Child Victims of Crime and I've got the family like um, a holiday to Disney World. You don't right. have to do that as a police officer, but, you know, these the families go through the mill and the money is there if you take the trouble to... Point in the right direction. Get it. Yeah. yeah, but it just takes a little bit of extra thought. You don't have to do that as a police officer, but often that bit is the bit that matters in my opinion. Getting through those layers of bureaucracy. I yeah. bet there's more women, young girls groomed, what don't even come forward. Well, there's got to oh, be an epidemic of it. It's the tip of the iceberg, you know. Um, I'm thinking of doing my own podcast, actually, trying to collect voices of people who have never been heard, you know, survivors um, who don't want to go to court, who don't want to write a book. But talking and speaking out is a way of feeling valued. It's a way of knowing that you're supported and and helping you to move forward with your life, knowing you, it's sometimes at the right time. Um, But many places where I go, people who have never spoken about being sexually abused come and talk to me. We had a survivor on yesterday, Helen Wood, and she was molested at age seven. But she is a very strong character and she would be a good person to get on your podcast. She went on to win Big Brother. What's her name? Helen Wood. Oh. oh. Wayne Rooney. She made headlines with the Wayne Rooney thing. Uh, she became an escort and there was a, it was leaked that she slept with Wayne Rooney. I could say something there, but I won't. Going back to Holly then. So she had to get up in court then? That, that trial went ahead? Holly? Yeah. So she, she, uh, can you describe how that, what that was like? Were you there in court that no, day? No, 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 because I was off work at, by this point. I mean, my last day at work um, was in February 2012. I'd gone back to the major incident team, and but I, my head wasn't, my head was up my ass basically. This was all that was I could think about, and I was trying to go through the motions and do my normal job, and I was in work doing a photocopy and turn around one minute I'm standing the next I'm flat on my back on the floor and and, um and I I, my team took me to the doctor I never went back to work Mm. it it almost destroyed me this Mm. um I've kind of fought through it but for the only time in my life my doctor gave me antidepressants I took them for a few days and then threw them away um but um but I so I wasn't at court I was sat at home watching on the TV. Um, I wasn't being given any information. But um, obviously Holly was involved in the drama. And she struggles with life. She struggles still. She had to get up and testify in court, did she? Yeah. Yeah, she did. Um, Many, many hours of testimony. Hours and hours. She had to relive it again. Yeah. And if you, you know, you think about it, every one of the defendants... Has a barrister. And they tried to rip it and to pieces. Every barrister. The, the way that rape trials are run in general is. It's horrific, degrade. actually, yeah. because. And, and it, it prevents um, victims of rape 
often from approaching the authorities because that process is a scary process and the damage is often as bad, if not worse, than the actual abuse because you imagine the fear that after unburdening your soul in a court of talking about the most intimate parts of your life, probably the worst memories you've ever had in your life, uh, that, that for some reason that the offender's found not guilty. And then the public knows that you've not been believed. Is she, you know, are they making it up? Is it? It's, we, we need to really think, we really need to think carefully. My, my thoughts on the, on the Rochdale case was that we had so many victims that if we could deal with those victims in the right way and encourage them to tell us what had happened, we probably wouldn't have had a trial because the men would have seen the, the weight of the evidence against them was so overwhelming and professional evidence, you know, um, crisis intervention in the drama. Um, one of the characters played by Maxine um, portrays uh, a crisis intervention team worker. The real crisis intervention team worker didn't carry out that role. She was a manager um, in real life. That, that's an amalgamation of lots of different roles within an organisation. But the, the girls who were face-to-face -face with, with the victims, they, they were handing out condoms to them, and, which I personally have a, a, a bit of a problem with. If it was my 12-year-old daughter going for condoms, I would want to know, you know, I'd want a conversation. But, um, what's the saying? I've forgotten, I've lost You said name. about all of the victims, um, there wasn't enough evidence from them in the system to get these guys to sign plea bargains, basically. Well, I feel that had all the girls come on board, that we would have had enough evidence and we wouldn't have had a, a trial and we could have utilised all the professional witnesses as well who had I mean in, in one of the girls that I dealt with there was 900 pages of of evidence now it was in it was intelligence but evidence always starts as as intelligence so if you gather together all those things it it means that you've got a, a better chance of not running to trial that the the offenders will plead guilty before it gets to trial because it's a gam you know they, they're way up their odds of being acquitted don't they they know how to play the system yeah, they do know how to play it. So did the bastards at least get nailed at this trial? Not nearly enough, no. They how, how many perpetrators were on trial? I think there was 11. 11? And how many got, got guilty? I think nine. Were there nine? Eight or nine. I think it was nine. And what did the sentences range? Totally inadequate. But in my opinion, and I make it very clear in the book, I didn't feel that the charges reflected the multiple rapes that these men were guilty of. The, 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 most of those men weren't charged with rape. Um, they were guilty of raping dozens of children. It should have been child rape. It should have been rape. And even the guy who got Ruby pregnant, where we had a fetus and everything there, it was on a plate. They didn't even charge him with rape. She had special needs as well. He'd started raping her when she was 12 years old. Mm. I'm, you know, most of them were charged with trafficking. Well, trafficking is a much easier offence to prove. And yeah, these men did take them from Rochdale to Rotherham or maybe to St. Helens or to Bristol or to Birmingham in the car. But That's not trafficking, that's still taking them to rape. But they should have been charged with rape as well. Yeah. Most of them weren't. It was either sexual activity with a child or conspiracy to rape. These men were rapists, multiple rapists, and the language and the charges didn't reflect that. Now, 
I feel we've made some progress because there was recently, a, for instance, a child in a trial in Huddersfield. Those men were all charged with rape. They went to prison for 17 and 18 years. On the Rochdale case, they went to prison and they were out within two or three years. Oh, that's pathetic. It was just... And yet, Greater Manchester Police will say that that job was a fantastic success, as will the CPS. I disagree. We had... Everyone watching this is going to disagree. They're going to be up in arms in the comments. Well, I hope so, because, you know, it shocks me to this day... Um, I, you know, after I started to speak publicly, Peter Farr, who was the chief constable at the time, um, didn't address the issues that I'd raised with him. He tried to shoot the messenger. He said I was a woman who became too emotionally involved. I'd been bereaved. Basically, I'd lost the plot. Um, Well, no, I didn't. And I say in my book, I want everybody to make up their own mind. You know, do you think that what I said was right? You're guilty of having a heart, and they don't have a heart. Or a conscience. Yeah. Well, you know what goes around comes around, and I bloody hope it comes around for them, because they should be ashamed of themselves of what they've allowed to happen. That they really should. We all, as a police officer, everybody signs the oath of attestation. You know where you, pr- and it's in the beginning of the book, and you promise to act with integrity, to uphold the law, to protect the vulnerable. At what point does a chief constable lose sight? that that is what he promised to do. And when you get to that rank, you really are in a position where you can make a difference. But if you choose to turn a blind eye and make your decision based on budgets rather than on people's lives, then you should be held accountable, and they are not. Are they looking out for their own careers as well? They don't want to rock boats? That's what they're looking out for. I I personally believe that... um, we all start in the police with the same intention to do good. At a certain rank, there's a system that filters out those with a conscience and allows those who don't to, to go right to the top of the tree. That is the only thing that makes sense to me. It's the only, and, and the old boys network um, joins together. They cover each other's backs and they protect the organisation and, and that becomes the, the primary thing that matters. You know, um, Andy Burnham's the Mayor of Manchester... He is meant to hold GMP to account. I'm part of a small group of people who have highlighted at least 26 examples of gr- what we say is gross criminal neglect to him in detailed examples. We had one meeting with him. He should be holding the chief constable to account, but they become too close. They become friends. The IPCC is like a chocolate fire guard that, you know, they become friendly with the people that they are meant to be holding to account. So the system doesn't work. They're not accountable to anyone, are they? They're unaccountable, um, and we need to change that. (coughs) We really, really need to change that. If we're going to reconnect with the public and allow the public to trust the criminal justice system, which I really believe in, we have to be able to trust them. And, you know, if a chief constable knows today, if he doesn't do his job today, in 10 years' time... (coughs) He can be held accountable for his failures today. He would make very different decisions today. And, it's not going to happen in our life, so... Well, it is, because I'm not going to die until it is. I'm not going to die until it has happened. You know, there's a long way to go, but there's strength in numbers and we need to make it happen. We're getting near the end of the interview now, but there's one thing that we've overlooked that I forgot to ask you, which is a big part of the story, and we built up to it, but we, we skipped it. You said that you were talking to the family and they were opening up to you and you are having your cups of tea with them and you were building up to the point where you, you were going to tell them about the fetus. 
But you've not described what happened when that happened. It, it was all. It, it was actually a very. The timing of that was very important, um, and I didn't want to talk about it until I felt that I'd generated some trust um, and a kind of a relationship. And and the and I had <coughs> started to build a relationship with Mum, with Lorna, and um, it was quite a big deal though telling her. Um, I was very mindful that I'm telling her that we've actually got a grandchild in a freezer. And how would I feel if somebody came and said to me that my daughter, that my grand, you know, my grandchild had been seized and I'd not known about it for two years? And mm. how would I feel? So we actually, I actually took her. Um, she didn't have a lot in her life at that point, you know? Couldn't drive, didn't... So, um, and I don't even know Rochdale very well even though, strangely enough, I was born there in Littleborough. But I took her up to Hollingwood Lake and um, we we went for a big walk around the lake with, with her youngest child and we were feeding the ducks and then we went for a brew. And um, I just said, look, Lorna, that there's something that, you know, you need to know um, and then we need to tell uh, Ruby. And, and I just told her and she was just believe it and and couldn't understand how it could happen and cried um but even in those circumstances when we were talk we carried on talking and and she recognized that actually here we had absolute concrete proof of the guy who had abused her daughter and so she chose to say, well, it, you know, what's done is done, so let's go and get him. But even then, that man wasn't charged with raping her daughter. <sighs> and he was out of prison so walking around. DNA right there. We had DNA, we had a fetus. He had three children of his own. So even in relation to all the safeguarding measures for all these men, GMP knew what had been going on two years before. Nothing was done about all these um, abusers. They were left to continue living with, with their own children. Some of them, many of them were taxi drivers, picking up kids, going to school, picking up kids from school. Mm. But Lorna chose to say, right, well, let's go and get him. Um, and then she supported me in timing and, and telling Ruby, which was on a separate um, occasion, that we had this fetus. And, you know... Strangely enough, no, not strangely enough, actually, very, it's very important to say that these kids now are not kids. They're all in the young, the, the young women, they're in their early 20s. Um, they now recognise 100% how they were failed. When I first met Ruby, she thought she was, these were her friends. She basically told me to fuck off. That it was her words were it's a mint time and if the police hadn't got involved I'd still be doing it. I talk to Ruby now. She is passionate about making the changes that protect children today. She now knows how she was failed, but none of these kids recognise when they're in the thick of it that they're being abused. They're too young. Are they in that, relationships now? No, yeah, they're older. yeah, yeah. They've all got kids of their own. And they're getting on because you think it's mentally scarred, wouldn't you? 
It has. I mean, I, I, you know, I won't go into yeah. intimate details about each of them, but they never recover. They're always damaged. The relationships in the future are damaged. Who can they trust? You know, um, I remember Amber went, after the drama went out. Uh, her because she was like demonized in many respects that um her house was identified on social media uh, she rang me at like one o'clock in the morning uh, she had kids in the house she, somebody threatened to like firebomb a house they were saying she was the procurer yeah because that's the way she was portrayed yeah i'm telling everybody who's listening that is not the reality she was a child who was abused and deserved to be protected what they did was they demonised her in order to justify what they had done against her. She was had to be added onto that indictment to get her evidence into court. So they blackened her name. She hides behind the curtains to this day. But when the drama went out, her house was identified. She rang me. I'm over an hour away. I said, ring the police. The police had no record that she'd been a victim of this gang because it's not recorded on the system. So the the layers of this... You know, you only have to scratch the surface and, and the damage goes very, very deep. Um, Do you think any of them would come on the podcast? Because victims now that are going through it to hear their actual testimonies, it would be really powerful. It's, I don't think they'd want to relive it, would they? They want to put it behind them. It's difficult um, and I'm pretty protective of them. Yeah. I took one of the girls one time because she wanted to speak on a TV programme and um, she was... It, 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 she wasn't protected in the way that she should have been. TV just uses people up. They get a sound bite yeah. out of them and then... Maybe you're best doing it on your podcast. Misrepresent well, what they say. I'm just going to say that's... I'm going to... I would like them to talk... As we move forward, I can't do everything at once, but yeah. that is for next year. Once the pilot centre is established, which I hope will be maybe February or March, um, but that depends on whether we get the backing, whether I get the funding, whether... I get the right premises. I'm just looking for the right location, which is critical, actually, that they are not going to be targeted or identified because they come into my centre. So there's lots of things going on. But the, the, I would like to start to gather voices of survivors who want to speak to somebody who would support them. You know? In terms of the money, then, I'm going to give you a couple of quid on the way out of here for your foundation. Uh-huh. There's going to be links... In the description box below this video, I expect hundreds of thousands of people watch this. So if people just, you know, put, in a, put giving, in a couple of quid. Buy the book, donate, whatever you can, it's all appreciated for. It would all be, you know, we've just, um, it's taken a few months, but a lot of my time this year has been, uh, I've got two amazing people now who are co-trustees, um, but we've got, um, we've now got a charity number, which I've had about a month. So now we, we can um, get gift aid. Um, I need a fundraiser desperately. Somebody who has experience of applying for funding for, um, you know, lottery funding and corporate funding and public funding, because this will be a public service, because the public authorities are not providing what I hope to provide. Um, I want it to be a drop in centre, though, a, a place where people can come and be supported, be mentored, just be safe. They don't have to talk about abuse. No. That will be, it will be a gateway to those, um, to that help though. That, that's how I see it evolving. Um, so a long way to go, but you've got to start somewhere. So even if you can't donate, please let Maggie know in the comments below this video how you felt about this story today. Please subscribe to the channel and support us. You don't have to pay to do that. Subscription icon is in the bottom 
right-hand side of this video. I have mentioned various other interviews I've done with ex-police. I'm going to start a ex-cop interview playlist, and that will be down there below if you want to watch those other interviews as well. So if there was ever a person on the podcast who I wanted to give a hug to, it's you, maybe. <laughs> Bloody hell's fire. Oh. I think you're in for it. Well Thank done. You, yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening to me for all that. I bet your ears are battered. No, I could listen to you all day. <laughs> Seriously? Well, there's a lot more. I mean, read my book, anybody who hasn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it does kind of, everybody only wants to talk about the grooming. But I think I tried to fill in bits about how I am as a person so that they can understand why I felt I had to do what I did. Your personal journey was yeah, so um, informative. It shows how you became the person you was and mm. how your heart and soul was into everything. But the heartbreaking things that happened with your family, like I said earlier, I had tears in my eyes when I was reading those. Yeah. It is. I mean, but, you know, if nothing else, I'm, I'm, I wasn't going to write a book. Um, but I was asked so many times and I'm really happy now I've done it. It was a very difficult box for me to un unlock. But even for my own kids and my two, I've got two little grandsons now. You know, when I'm no, when I'm like pushing up daisies, they can read that and they know they can hear about the granddad and about Macy. And so, even if nobody else reads it, it, um, I'm I'm glad it's done. You know, it's. Uh, I highly recommend it. I'm going to leave a five star review on Amazon when I get back oh, as well. Please yeah. do, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and w, um, WH Smith Travel, if you're watching, you should be stocking it in the airport. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon's the best place or Aster and Amazon Worldwide Waterstones take care out there everyone cheers <laughs> from Liverpool thank you thank you yeah that was absolutely brilliant is it alright yeah I think we did um, two hours and 20 25 minutes take a hug <laughs> pleasure meeting you keep, keep, the, you keep so the wild man hug in the video as well <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for listening